time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. Jesus is glorious. He is magnificent. I want to talk to you about the wonder of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to simply lift him up. I want to speak about him not in terms of his coming to this earth and dying, but he was resurrected, and today he dwells on high. And it's this glorious risen Lord I want to talk to you about. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. You will not make much progress in your journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city unless you know who Jesus Christ is today. Understanding the scriptures, the history, that's all vitally important. But if you don't know what Jesus is doing today on your behalf, you will not make very much progress toward that celestial city. We're going to begin today with the book of Revelation. I don't usually preach on the book of Revelation. And the reason I don't is I have seen so much deception. Everybody has their own little interpretation. I can tell you one thing for certain about the book of Revelation. I read it several times a year, all the way through, because one fact leaps out at me, and that is, Jesus wins. That's the good news. I always like to go to the last chapter of a book and find out who wins before I read the book. (laughs) Well, Jesus wins. The author of this book is, of course, Jesus, but he used a revelator. He used John, the apostle. And just a word about John. He was the most feared man in the Roman Empire. He was considered to be one of the most dangerous men in the Roman Empire by the Roman government. He proclaimed a gospel that was uncompromising. He preached that Jesus was Lord and Savior and not Caesar. The early Christian church was persecuted because they would not incorporate. Part of the incorporation process required that they recognize Caesar as Lord. And so they refused to incorporate They lifted Jesus up as Lord. The church was not in existence by the permission of government. The church was the called out ones. The called out ones. They were called out by Jesus Christ. The church was a part of his body. They exist And they thrive by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I recognize that today 
the church has become in America very much a business. The church in scripture is never a business. The pastor is never a CEO. He is never a coach. He is a prophet. He is a watchman. He is a preacher. He is a guardian of the flock. He is the under shepherd of the flock. He is the servant of the Most High God, and he is the servant of the people who come and share in the body. Jesus said, let him who wants to be the greatest among you be the least among you. The pastor is least among the people. He is called to be a servant leader. His authority does not rest on a position. His authority rests on a function. He is there to provide the pastoral care to the people of God. He's there to correct, to rebuke, to encourage. He is there to counsel. He is not there to dominate. He's not there to rail against. He is there to lift up Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And so John comes to the island of Patmos, not by his will. History tells us that they tried to execute John, and they were unsuccessful. They threw him, apparently, into a cauldron of boiling oil. He was untouched by it. So they exiled him to this piece of rock in the ocean. And there he was not to be in touch with anyone, but they could not stop Jesus Christ from speaking with him. Now we find in the book of Revelation that John is in a very particular place. He's in the spirit. What does that mean? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but certainly it is a place of rapturous joy. It is a place of revelation. It is a place of fellowship with Jesus. And we're told in Revelation, the first chapter, in verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. This is the Jesus that that John was fellowshipping with. The Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. This is Jesus, the risen Lord. Now, as you would expect, when Jesus comes to speak with his apostle, the first thing on Jesus' heart is to address the question, what is the spiritual condition of my church? Always you can tell a true prophet by whether or not they address the true condition of the people of God. That is what is foremost on the heart and mind of Jesus. And so we find the letters to the seven churches. 
This was the revelation given to John to comfort and guide and rebuke his church. Then you come to chapter 4. John has recorded carefully the messages to the churches. And as he's standing, evidently taking a break, he looks up. And there in the sky above him, he sees a door open. I think back in scripture. Remember Jacob? He laid his head on a rock on this journey to Uncle Laban. And he saw the heavens open. And he saw a stairway or a ladder reaching from earth to heaven. Then again, when Jesus came and was calling his disciples, remember his conversation with Nathaniel. He told Nathaniel that he would see the heavens open and a ladder or a stairway between heaven and earth. That stairway between heaven and earth is Jesus. There is no way to enter into that eternal place of glory other than on that stairway of Jesus Christ. He is the one who grants access. So John is standing, looking up into heaven, and he sees the door open, but he has no way to climb a ladder to go into that great door. But a voice speaks to him like a trumpet and says, Come up here, and I'll show you What must take place after this? This is chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. I want you to get this picture. There is a there is a grand room, larger than anything you've ever seen, larger than anything that you can imagine. I'll show you in just a moment that there were 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 angels in solemn assembly in this throne room. Sitting on that throne was the eternal God, He had a jasper color or appearance in his robe. A jasper is a light green. And he had carnelian, and that's red. So you have the light green, the color of mercy in Scripture. And you have carnelian the color of judgment, justice. And you have a rainbow encircling emerald, representing the eternal, everlasting covenant. For the Father made a covenant with the the Son before the creation of the earth. It's called in Scripture, the new covenant, or the everlasting covenant. That 
encircling of the throne represents this covenant. Now, around this grand throne, there are 24 other thrones, and seated on them are 24 elders. I've often wondered who those elders were. Do you suppose one of them was Adam or Noah? I wonder if King David sat on one of those 24 thrones. I wonder if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sat on one of those 24 thrones. I've wondered who would sit on those thrones, but get the picture. In the middle of this room is this grand throne. It's larger than just one human person would require. It is a very large throne. And then around this throne, encircling it, are 24 more thrones. So you now have 25 thrones in this throne room. God is obviously sharing his kingdom and his rulership with these 24 elders, human beings. You recognize that when Jesus comes again in all of his glory to finally settle the earth, and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and settles on the Mount of Olives, and it splits apart, and a great plain is there, and this cube-shaped new Jerusalem descends from heaven. God will rule the universes from earth. And human beings will serve as his priests, as his servants, in the rulership on this earth. Now, these elders were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. And before the throne stood seven lamps blazing. These are the seven spirits or the seven, the sevenfold spirit of the living God. A seven representing the number of perfection, meaning that this spirit of God is filled with all knowledge and wisdom. We know him as God, the spirit of Christ. Remember in the creation story, it was this spirit who hovered over the face of the deep and brought forth the creation that was spoken by Jesus. You recognize we don't know very much about this Holy Spirit. He's been on the earth for 2,000 years, yet we know much less about him than we know about Jesus, who was here for only three and a half years. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is not here to talk about himself. He's here to lift up Jesus. He is an utterly servant-hearted being. There is no selfishness in him. There's no grandstanding in him. He is only here to lift up Jesus Christ and to draw all men unto him. He is the essence of the servant of the living God. 
he is God. Now it says, there are, there before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. We find later in the book of Revelation that this sea of glass would soon be filled with a multitude beyond numbering. And these would be the saints of God. You see why I said this throne room is quite large. It holds a multitude of people before the throne of God. And it is filled with 10,000 times 10,000 angels, all in solemn assembly. Now, in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back, simply telling us that these four creatures saw everything. Nothing missed their attention. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth like an eagle. Commentators are really divided on what this means. Some of the old-timers believed that this represented the four camps as it was divided of the children of Israel as they went through the wilderness. I really can't answer. I don't know. And I'm not going to speculate, but these were very powerful beings, and they were on all four sides of the throne of God. And day and night, they continually said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This word holy We have several words that are used for holy. The most common definition is to be set apart, but it's much more than that. The word holy who is used here uh, literally means one of a kind. God is one of a kind. There's no other like him. If you remember, John 3.16 says, that the only begotten of God, the only begotten of God. Well, literally, it does not mean the only one that was born of God. It means instead the only one like this one. In other words, no one else is like Jesus. He stands utterly alone. He is fully man and he is fully God. He is the Son of God. But he is equal with God in every respect. He pre-existed the creation of the earth. He has been from time and eternity. He existed before the creation of time. He is fully God. And so they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, I've shared all of this with you to talk about Jesus, this glorious Savior that we have. And we, we find an incredible truth. I wanted to talk to you about it the other day. If some of you remember, I said, I have a revelation I want to share with you, but there simply wasn't time to unfold it. I want to unfold it for you today. Chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The Greek word used here for wept is not a quiet, reserved, tearing up. It is instead a full-out bawling, wailing, It is the loudest form of crying. It is heartbroken. It is the cry of a devastated man. Well, why would John be so utterly broken and devastated because the scrolls cannot be opened? This is a a large scroll, perhaps even in sections, and each section has its own seal on it, and no one can be found in heaven who can open the seals on this scroll. Well, let's go back to John for just a moment. He's writing this revelation sometime around A.D. 95. So he's now an old man close to the end of his life. He's the only disciple who said of himself, I'm the one Jesus loves. John had been a man of hot passion, of angry words. And in knowing Jesus Christ, he had been completely transformed. While still a man of great strength, a man of great compassion now, a man of great mercy, a man who had faithfully given his life to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. He had endured bitter persecutions. They had tried on numerous occasions to kill him. Each time his life was spared. And now at the end of his life, he is separated from the church. He is isolated on a piece of rock out in the ocean. Basically, his ministry is over. And now he hears that this scroll cannot be opened. 
He doesn't find Jesus. He sees God sitting on the throne. He sees the angels. He sees the 24 elders. He sees this grand ballroom. He sees this throne room of God. But where is Jesus? He can only draw one conclusion. And that is that just as he was utterly devastated when Jesus Christ died on Calvary, his hope had been that Jesus would deliver them from Rome. His hope had been that the kingdom would be ushered in and the Romans would be kicked out. When Jesus died on the cross, John was utterly devastated. He was broken. And now, once more, Jesus is not present in heaven. And no one can open the scrolls, which means to John that the plan God had for his people would stop right where it was, and it would never be unfolded. He had to begin in his heart to question whether the sacrifice that Jesus had made had been accepted. It appeared to John that the situation of God's people was now utterly hopeless because Jesus was no longer present with God. And he didn't know what to do about this. All he could do in the face of the reality that what God had planned for his life and for the life of his people could not be unfolded because Jesus was gone and there was no one here who could unfold the purposes of God by opening these scrolls. Let's think for a moment about your life. How would you feel if you knew today that your life was over, that nothing was going to happen for you in eternity, that you were forever given into darkness and there would be no deliverance. If I were told that, I would wail too. I would weep because everything in my life has been sacrificed and given to go to the celestial city and be a part of God's people. Everything in my heart and my life has been given to the proposition that Jesus will come again and redeem unto himself a people who've made a covenant by sacrifice with him. I have sacrificed my life for Jesus Christ. I've given him full power and authority in every area of my heart and my life. I have held nothing back. If Jesus is not present in heaven, then I am of all men most miserable. I don't have plan B. We only live this life one time. We go through one time and that's it. Do you understand? This is life. And if this is all there is, and there is going to be no heaven, how can I bear the knowledge that I have? 
And how can I bear the sacrifice I've made? I've not held back money or time. I've not created my own relationships. I've given all into the hand of God. So I, with John, if I were in that place, would not know what to do except weep, wail, roll on the floor, die. But then one of the elders, I can see him now. He he stands up from his throne and he lays his crown down by his throne. I wonder if it was, I wonder if it was King David or another one of the greats. They came over to John and this was the word that was given. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John stops crying. Jesus is coming. He looks up. You see, he'd not recognized Jesus in the first part of the revelation. This being that he had seen had a sword coming out of his mouth. He had white hair, he eyes of fire, feet of, of fiery bronze, a voice of, of thunder, a voice of, of rushing water. He had not recognized Jesus. He looks up. Chapter 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking like it had been slain in the midst or in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Did you get it? Jesus came, and he was like a slain lamb. He was bloody. Any time we go to the throne room of God, we will find there the blood of Jesus Christ. We will find there the slain lamb who made atonement for our sins. There is no sin of your heart or of your body or of your mind or of your spirit that you cannot bring to this throne room and lay there before the Lord, Jesus will come. The triumphant Lord will come. This slain lamb, it said, had seven horns and seven eyes. Seven again is the number of perfection. Horns in the Old Testament was a symbol of ultimate strength or power. Seven eyes means he sees all things. He's all wise. He's filled with knowledge. We have here the seven spirits of God. In other words, you have Jesus coming now as the almighty God, but he's coming as a lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. That's who we come to. That's who Jesus is today. 
He is the lamb slain for us. John no longer needs to weep because Jesus has come and Jesus has the authority and the power and has earned the right to unfold the purposes of God in your life and in the life of the people of God. There is a heaven to win and a hell to miss. I'm going to continue this after a short break. Let's play that St. Jude's benediction. It's right on, Eric. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. For the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord.
Our number here in studio is 877-534-0780. This is live. You're welcome to call and share testimony or or let me pray for you. Our our number again is 877-534-0780. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. You're welcome to go to nationalprayerchapel.com. We're streaming live today. And you're also welcome to go there and find past broadcasts in video format, blogs, podcasts, many resources, I think, that will help you in this journey to the Celestial City. You're also welcome to email me at pastorray at nationalprayerchapel.com. I'd love to hear what God is doing in your life. I'd like to hear your testimony. Are you making progress in this journey toward heaven? I also give you a phone number. You're welcome to call me privately off air at 703-672-1203. That number again, 703 703- 672-1203. I come to lift up Jesus Christ. <clears throat> He's the one that I love. He's the one I've given my life for. I ask you, please come, walk with me. The National Prayer Chapel is not, how should I put it? It's not a business. It's not an institution. It's a real body of people. It's a place of integrity where we desire to seek Jesus with all of our hearts. And if the Holy Spirit is prompting you, come and walk with us. Join us in our journey toward heaven. The only purpose for the National Prayer Chapel is to lift up the name of Jesus And to work as the Holy Spirit directs to draw all men into Jesus Christ. That they might be made righteous. That they might live holy lives. That they might be redeemed from the darkness of this age. And into the glorious light of Jesus Christ. So you're welcome to come and walk with me. Walk with others. On this journey. Now let's go back to Revelation, the fifth chapter. Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation 5, verse 7, speaking about Jesus. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain and your blood you purchased men for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all of them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Then we have Jesus in the sixth chapter beginning to open the seals. Now, there is quite a bit of disagreement over what this means. I'll simply today tell you what I understand as I have studied this book of Revelation. In my understanding, the seven seals represent, if you would, an index to everything that is going to happen for the closing of time. In other words, the trumpets are going to come under one of the seals. The thunders are going to come under one of the seals. The seals are, in a sense, the timeline to the end of time. Now, here's where there's some disagreement. Many believe that the seven seals do not begin to be opened until we are in the final seven years of tribulation. I'm not sure I agree with that. As I read these seals, it seems clear to me that the first, second, and third seal has already been opened. If you look, for example, at the third seal, it says, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarters of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Well, what does that mean? The nutritional needs of a man are met in a quart of wheat. Barley is a less nutritious grain. It takes three quarts of barley to make one meal or one day survival calorie intake for a man. So I believe what it's saying is the day will come when men will work, they'll put in their time, and their pay will be enough just to keep them alive with food for one day. We are now experiencing that worldwide. 
That's what's happening in America as the economy is collapsing. We will continue to see a full and complete collapse of the American economy. One day we'll wake up and they will announce there is a banking holiday and they will have discounted the dollar perhaps as much as 70%. You recognize that by discounting the dollar, they're also discounting the $16 trillion of debt that America owes. Literally, they're inflating the dollar. Well, it then says, do not damage the oil and the wine. To me, that means don't touch the 1%. Let the elite continue to be the elite. Let them have their oil and their wine. Then the Lamb opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was closely following behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the field. Did you realize that that is being written about today by sociologists? It's being spoken about by the federal government. They refer to it as the great die-off. What do I mean? If suddenly we no longer had the electrical grid, that would mean no gasoline. That would mean no trucks coming to bring food. How long could you last with the food that's in your house? We have about a three-day supply of food in the grocery stores. If we went for a month without any new food coming into Washington, D.C., we would have riots. We would have houses being burned down, people being murdered for food. People would begin to starve to death. We would not have clean water. People would have to begin drinking water out of the Potomac. People would begin to die of disease, of dysentery. We would see a horrendous die-off as countless numbers who had not made any adequate preparation would simply die, first the elderly and then the sick and then the healthy. How far would it go? We don't know. But one of the seals that will be opened will release death so that a fourth of all the population of the earth will perish. Now, this is terrifying. I believe that we're coming close to this fourth seal being opened. If you believe the Aztec calendar, which I don't put a lot of credence in, they say that in December of this year, the world will stop. If we look at it scientifically, our airplane industry, the airlines, 
are constantly having to readjust their compass because the North Pole is fluctuating. And they now know that in some past time, there has been before a pole reversal. Does that mean that the North Pole becomes the South Pole and the South Pole becomes the North Pole? Yes, maybe. Or it could mean that the North Pole will move itself to the equator. And suddenly now, what is tropical will become frozen. And the South Pole and the North Pole will become tropical. I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know that the ring of fire is coming to life. I do know that the earth is groaning and making sounds that are terrifying. I do know that the scriptures tell us that the earth is going to begin to crack up, be unstable, that great earthquakes are going to come upon the earth. If you look further in verse 15, there is going to be a great earthquake. The earth is going to be shaken. The sky is going to roll up like a scroll. Every mountain and every island is going to be removed from its place. I believe these things are right at the door. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and the mighty, slaves and every free man, they're going to hide in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They're going to call on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, as we close this broadcast today, I would love to take time, and I'm not going to today, but we need to talk about wrath. You need to understand, in John, the third chapter, verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath, his Passionate anger is against every human being on the face of the earth, save those who are hidden in Jesus Christ. We're told in the book of Romans that men are storing up wrath now as in a bank for the great day of tribulation. My question to you is, have you gone to the throne of God where the Lamb of God slain with his blood, is available to remove wrath from your life? Or are you under the wrath of God today? If you're walking in deliberate rebellion against the Most High God, if you have not given your life over to Jesus Christ, then the wrath of God remains on you. And you may live a a relatively normal life here, but then you must go to the judgment And in the judgment, the wrath of God will be poured out on you without measure. And you will be cast into that place of fiery furnace, that place of hell. 
Today, you can have the wrath removed from your life. But there is only one way, and that is to flee to the throne room of God. It is to lay before God and repent of your sin and plead the blood of this Savior who died for you. It is to be made holy by that precious blood. I want to pray for you. Almighty God, I ask today that your wrath would be removed from every person listening to this broadcast. I ask that great conviction of sin would come upon every man and woman who has yet any wrath remaining on them. I ask that this wrath could be removed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would raise up men and women who would join together to make this journey from this place of destruction to the celestial city. And Lord Jesus, I praise you today. I lift you up. I honor your name. You are magnificent. You are wonderful. I love you. And I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother and my sister. I'll talk to you soon. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.